Okay, without any further ado, our first message today, we brought to us by Mr. Reg Noland, is entitled, Many Crowns. King James Version of the Bible uses the word crown or crowns 75 times. Now that's quite a lot for something that is so, a reference that is so specific. So I ask, what is a crown? Occasionally a crown refers to the ornamental molding. We don't have it in here, but uh, the, the, the crown molding that goes around the uh, uh, top of the walls or at the ceiling. Sometimes it refers to that. The ornamental molding such as that is also on the Ark of the Covenant. This would be considered a crown here on the altar itself or on the uh, pulpit. But uh, the, the crowning is the molding around the top of the Ark of the Covenant, as in Exodus uh, 25:11, or on the table of the showbread, as in Exodus 25, 24, 25. I don't need to go to those. It's just talking about the molding at the top of the, uh, top of the uh, object. But we still use that word today to refer to that little plank of wood that, the, uh, across the, that uh, sets off the top of the wall. The... Um, most often, though, it refers to a headdress of some kind uh, to designate a leader, usually a priest or a king. I find it interesting throughout all of history, all around the world, almost all of the hierarchical societies, including most kingdoms, the Catholic Church, and many tribal units, have bestowed upon their designated leader some kind of headgear as a symbol of authority, whether that headgear is made of gold or silver or bronze, leather, uh, horns, they even have horns as a, as a headgear, linen or feathers, or in the case of our current White House resident, a baseball cap, maybe that's his crown, who knows, so that he can switch teams whenever it's convenient for him. Often the leader is consecrated in a public ceremony by the leader as a priestly caste, as if to say that the God, whatever God they serve, blesses and approves of the leader. Now, while this crown is a symbol of the leader's authority, the power that he has, the uh, uh, might, the military might, is imbued upon some kind of staff or scepter. Have you ever noticed that? There's usually two things, a crown for the head and a scepter in the right hand. And the scepter in the right hand is his power, his authority, his military might, whereas the crown is his uh, authority to, to do so. I find it most curious that these two emblems uh, sh should be so ubiquitous ever, everywhere. One would think that if the cultures are different, then the symbols of the leader's authority would be different, wouldn't they? Not so. It turns out that throughout the entire, through all of history, all over the world, that, that's just not the case. Rather, the symbol of the leader's authority seems universally associated with his head, and uh, perhaps to emphasize the mind, his intelligence, his decision-making, his judgment, his wisdom, his insight and foresight, his ability to communicate goals and visions and plans, all of that are things that are associated with the head. Likewise, the symbol for the leaders of power and military might has been linked to his hand, usually as a staff or scepter or a signet ring, one of the three. Hmm. Emblems? On the head and the hand. Where have we heard that before? Scripture mentions several kinds of crowns. There's a crown of the priest, the crown of the king, uh, crowns of life, cr uh, the crown of Christ, the crown of thorns, the crown of laurel leaves. Uh, 
Today I'd like to explore each of these different kinds of crowns a little bit, but focus on the last two, the crowns of thorns and the crown of laurel leaves. Surprisingly, the first the crown mentioned in the scripture is not a human crown at all, but it is the crown of the Ark of the Covenant and the table of the showbread. What does it suggest that the first crowns mentioned are not human, are not related to human? Hmm. Maybe God wanted an, a, a, a society that was built upon a theocracy instead of a human monarchy. The possibility there. Um, also, surprisingly, the first crown of human authority mentioned in Scripture is not the crown of the king, but is the crown of the high priest. We see that in Exodus 29.6. Exodus 29.6. And thou shalt put the, entire, put the mitre on his head and put a holy crown upon the mitre. We see that affirmed again in Leviticus 8.9. He put the mitre upon his head, and, and upon the mitre, even upon his forefront, did he put a gold plate, a holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, the word mitre that is mentioned here is actually a linen turban, um, a, a cloth of some kind, to protect the priest from uh, the crown, that, the heavy gold crown uh, cutting into his head. Because these crowns of authority were no lightweight tiaras. They were actually some heavy, massive, honking headgear that would take a king with a really stiff neck to wear it, to hold it up. Uh, in, in 2 Samuel uh, 12, 29, we get, get an idea of what this is like. Uh, David gathered all the people together, and they went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the king's crown from his forehead. The weight thereof was a talent of gold with precious stones, and it was set in David's, and it was set on David's head. And he brought forth the spoil of the city in great abundance. Now, technically speaking, this passage is a little bit misleading. While the battle was fought in David's name, uh, Joab actually did the fighting. And while J David remains in Jerusalem, as Chronicles makes clear. So in Chronicles, First uh, Chronicles 21 and 2, we see a little bit more detailed description of the same event. It happened in the, in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to do battle, that uh, Joab led the armed forces and, that, and ravished the country of the people of Ammon and, came, to, and be, came and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed in Jerusalem, and Joab defeated Rabbah and overthrew it. Then David took the king's crown from his head and found it to, uh, found it to weigh a talent of gold, and there were precious stones in it. And it was set on David's head, and he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. Now, a talent of gold, a talent of gold, according to Easton's Bible Dictionary, is equal to, or get ready for this, 94 and 3 sevenths pounds adjuvah. Okay, so perhaps the crown was so heavy to remind the king of how weighty his responsibilities were. Okay, I don't know. Uh, these two crowns are then blended together, the crown of the priest and the crown of the king, into a messianic crown. Such a crown is illustrated in the installation of Joshua, another name for Jesus, by the way, uh, but was really a foreshadowing of the dual role of the returning Christ as both priest and high king. So turn to Zechariah 6, uh, 11 through 13. It says, Take the silver and gold, make an elaborate crown, 
set it on the head of Joshua, the son of uh, Jehoshadak, Jehoz Jehoz the high priest. Uh, then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. Joshua actually means branch. And uh, hence, Jesus also means branch. Um, from his place. He shall branch out and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear his glory and shall sit and rule in, on, on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne. A council of peace shall be between them both. You notice something? Here we have a priest who is also serving as a king. Those two offices were separate in ancient Israel. The priestly caste belonged strictly to um, the Levi uh, and uh, the house of Judah as well was the uh, ru ruling class. So you had two different, two different, two different um, families that were running things effectively here. And they seldom if ever crossed. The only place they did cross, we find out, was back in... Um, um, uh, I'm drawing a blank. Yeah. Oh well. Okay. Um, but the, we see here the two crowns that are united when uh, Christ is in the body and uh, personage of Christ. The, not only is Christ wearing the crown of authority, but he's also holding a scepter of power in the form. Um, I skipped this page. Let me back up. We see this crown again in Revelation 14. In Revelation 14, is, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Okay? So, do you notice here, Christ is not only wearing the crown of gold, a symbol of his authority, but he's also holding a scepter of his power in the form of a sharp sickle which from which he, with which he will reap the earth. In Revelation, we see several other crowns as well. For example, the four and twenty elders also wear crowns, but they cast their crown, crowns before Christ. Revelation 4, verses 8 through 11. The four living creatures each having six wings, were full of eyes round and about, round and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders all fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crown before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Now think. Does Christ have to dodge a shower of golden crowns every time the four living creatures give honor and glory and thanks to him? If so, he'd be dodging crowns all the time. Right? Probably not. Rather, casting their crowns before Christ is a metaphor for surrendering their power, their authority to him. It is an, an emblem of allegiance. Indeed, not all crowns are literal. In, the, in scripture. Rather, crown is often used metaphorically to mean highest honor 
or as a symbol of authority and power or something of great value to the owner. Uh, take, for example, Proverbs. We've been studying Proverbs in our um, Tuesday night Bible study. So take Proverbs 12, verse 4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but uh, she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. Now, obviously, the husband does not wear his wife on his head. Well, there might be a few that do that sort of kinky stuff, but not generally. Uh, so here, the wife is something that the husband values greatly. His pride and joy. Likewise, wisdom, often referred to as a good woman, is an intangible, as her, are her gifts, but they are prized with great value. Proverbs uh, 4, 7 through 9. Wisdom is the main thing. Get wisdom, and with all your might you are getting understanding. Prize her, and she shall lift you up. She will bring you to honor when you embrace her. She shall give, you, give to your hand an ornament of grace. Grace, huh? Uh, and she shall shield you with a crown of glory. S scripture makes several references to crowns of glory. For example, I've got four examples here to illustrate. Proverbs 16.31 says, A hoary head is a crown of glory, if it be found in, in the way of righteousness. So those with white hair. We have several in here with the white hair. They're a crown of glory for us here. Um, Proverbs 17, uh, 6. Children's children are the crown of old men. Right, Steve? Children's children? Okay. Are the crown of old men, and the glory of children are their fathers. Uh, Isaiah 62, 3. You shall be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord. And a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Zechariah 9.16 The Lord their God will save them in that day. As a flock of his people. For they are, shall be like jewels in a crown. Lifted in a ban banner over his land. Now are we actually going to be jewels in a crown? No. That's a metaphor. That's what we like the jewels in the crown. As gold upon uh, Brilliance and value upon value upon value. Amplifying it. However, a crown is not something that is permanently attached to its owner. Rather, it can be removed under certain circumstances. Uh, uh, Jeremiah laments in Lamentation 5.16. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe unto us, for we have sinned. Ezekiel says, uh, is a warning to the prince of Egypt. This, this scripture actually does my heart good. Uh, Ezekiel 21, 25 to 26 says, Now to you, O profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day has come, whose iniquity shall end. Thus says the Lord God, Remove the turban. Take off the crown. Nothing shall, re uh, nothing shall remain the same. Exalt the humble and humble the exalted. Not all crowns are noble. Sometimes that which we prize can be wicked or can lead to wickedness. For example, Isaiah points to the crown of pride in 28.1. Uh, woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of uh, Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is as a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valleys to those who are overcome with wine. Indeed, Revelation 6.2 points to the first horseman of the apocalypse, 
a false Christ as one given a crown and using a bow to go forth conquering. Revelation 6, 2. And I looked and behold a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. How do we know that this is the false Christ and not the real one? Well, besides being the second horse of the apocalypse, um, he uses uh, the wrong weapon. He uses a bow. The real Christ never used the bow. He used a sharp two-edged sword. So we know that this one is a false Christ because of the weapon. Christ uses the two-edged sword of truth. Further, there's no indication that his crown is made of gold. He was said it was given a crown. But it could be very well be the linen mitre of, say, the pope, the cardinals, or the bishops. That would be an example of it. There are other two other crowns that are mentioned in Scripture which I find compelling. The first is the crown of thorns, mockingly placed upon Jesus' head during his execution. Let's examine the whole scene. I'm using the passage from Matthew. There are two other companion scriptures there in Mark 15, 16 through 20, and John 19, 1 through 5. But Matthew provides some details that um, we, we need to pay attention to. Uh, Matthew 27, uh, 27 to 31. Then the soldiers, of the, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. The other two passages say this is purple. Maybe Matthew was colorblind. I don't know. But uh, the other two passages do say that it was purple. Um, they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And they twisted a crown of thorn. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. Notice a reed in his right hand. Um, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat on him. And they took the reed from him and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took off the robe from him and put his, clothes, uh, put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. As I said, the companion scriptures in Mark and in John report that the robe was purple. Okay, I, but I cite the passage in Matthew because of some of the details he provides. First, while it is a mockery of his kingship, the crown of thorns ought to be precious, very precious to each one of us, for it is an emblem of the pain that our sins caused him. His crown of authority, his crown of authority to be our savior is our sins. And that crown of thorns is a really appropriate emblem for it. I sing with Josh Brown of Day of Fire. How heavy was the crown of thorn. How heavy was the crown of thorn. How heavy was the crown of thorn. While the soldiers took off the robe and put Jesus' clothes back on him, there's no indication anywhere that they ever removed the crown of thorns. Hence, many of the paintings of what the painters thought was Jesus being crucified show him still wearing the crown of thorns, with the inscription plaque nailed above him, mockingly stating in three languages, King of the Jews. Second, did you notice one other detail? The soldiers placed a reed in his hand. The reed in his right hand is an ineffectual scepter. Again, mocking his kingship, mocking his authority, um, asserting that he was powerless to do, any, uh, do anything about it. 
And they took the reed and the scepter from him. They took his own power from him and then smote him with it. Hmm. The last crown I'd like to mention is one that relates more to us and to our humanity, our carnality. It's found in um, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27 approximately, where or Paul compares our Christian journey to an athlete running a race. But the omissions in the King James Version cause us to lose part of the meaning of his analogy. So I'm going to cite here the complete Jewish version when I get, get to the actual point. Let's first look at the King James, um, King James Version of this Bible. Uh, King James Version says, And every man that striveth for mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. But we are, but we an incorruptible crown. Corruptible, incorruptible, we see what the meaning is, right? No problem here. One that is permanent, one that is temporary. Makes it a little clear in the New, New King James Version. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to ta- obtain a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. A little bit more specific. We can understand what's going on. This, perish- this crown that they're seeking after is one that will fade, one that will perish. Uh, whereas we're looking for one that, is, that will not fade. As I said, the complete Jewish Bible, though, does provide, uh, I think, probably the best translation here in this particular case. Now, every athlete in training submits himself to strict discipline, and he does it just to win a laurel wreath that will soon wither away. But we do it to win a crown that will last forever. Okay? Yeah. So... It was a practice in ancient in Greek society to award the winner of the games, the Olympic Games, a wreath of laurel leaves as his crown of victory. How appropriate. You realize what they're doing when they do that. The athlete's greatest accomplished, besting all others in the race, after months or years of discipline and training, is rewarded with a transitory crown of laurel leaves that will soon wither away. They had already dead. As soon as they were removed from the vine, they were dead. But now they have only to dry up. And like his accomplishments, they are meaningless and trivial. For his record will stand only until another athlete comes along and breaks it. And he will quickly be forgotten by a fickle public. In fact, it's commonly said that the memory of each one of us will last at most two generations. Our children and our children's children may be their children if we're around when they are. So, two generations. That's our heritage. That's our legacy. Beyond that, we're just a name in a book. Likewise, all of our carnal accomplishments are equally transitory. Our wealth, our prestige, our power, our expertise, all our honors and awards, all just as meaningless. The preacher of Ecclesiastics said it best. Ecclesiastics 1-2 says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. If we place our trust in ourselves only, then we are chasing dust in the wind. Paul advises us to seek the imperishable crown. 
रिवाज